little bit of wrestling over what do we what do we preach on today, right? It's a crazy world out there, a lot going on. Um, and my my final thought on that, I think, goes something like this: I'm just going to trust that God knows what He's doing. And so we're in the middle of a series. We looked. Um, last week at the role of God's word and the way that God's word draws us toward his son and his love and his hope. And today, I, when, when planning all of this previous to current events, um, today is a communion Sunday on our normal calendar, and I wanted to talk about the, the way that communion works and the way that God draws us closer to himself through his table. And then all the craziness of the past, you know, week of current events and cancellations and all of this. Um, and I, I, I think I finally came to the conclusion, maybe, maybe what we need is just to spend some time in God's word as it relates to this subject. Not just to get our minds off of the insanity around us, but to ground us in something that is eternal and true and reliable and good. And so to that end, I'd like to invite you into a, uh, explana- or an exploration of God's word as it relates to his table, the ways in which God draws us closer to himself through coming to his table. We're going to start in a, a, what may seem like a slightly unlikely place, but um, this is the first place in scripture that bread and wine are brought together in a worship, in a context of worship to the one true God, Uh, and it occurs in the book of Genesis fairly early in the story of Abram, even before his name is changed to Abraham, and we're going to be just reading a few verses from Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 18, 19, and 20. Um, Abraham has, he's living in a tumultuous time and there's been a lot of warfare around him tribal warfare in the communities around him and he has just gained a military victory of sorts and and he knows that it was God who who prevailed in that context and this is before uh, the Jewish people are anything other than Abraham's immediate family and so there are no priests there's no uh, Ark of the Covenant. It's all. This is before all of that stuff, and so it's, things are really simple. It's just Abram and a guy named Melchizedek, who is a. a the Bible says he's a priest of the one true God, and so we're going to just read this little interaction between them. And again, it's the first time in the Bible that bread and wine are mentioned in the context of worship, and we're just going to talk about that briefly after we read it. So, Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18, and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram Abram gave him a tenth of everything so just will begin by noting that bread and wine have always been on God's table. These are fundamental elements of life. In the ancient world, you were way better off 
drinking a glass of wine than you were drinking a glass of water. Water could kill you. Uh, wine uh, would have the yeast in it working very hard to kill the other bacteria so that you could drink it safely. And this was like the, the, the drink of choice in the ancient world, I guess. And if you tasted ancient wine, you wouldn't like it, right? It's, it's grown with wild yeast. It's going to be a little bit sour, um, kind of a little nasty, uh, a little musty maybe. It's just, ooh, right? But if the alternative is drinking water and getting sick, give me some of that musty wine. So bread, the staple of life really in the ancient world, this is, it's not just a food, it's a symbol. It's, it's a big uh, thing. And the ability to grow grain, harvest it, grind it, knead it, and bake it was a sign that you were living in a time of peace when armies weren't trampling your fields and you know, destroying your village. And, um, and so bread is a symbol of life and peace and hope and goodness, right? And so bread and wine are on the table of the Lord from the very first time that he is worshipped uh, in this context of, of a meal, right? And God is trying to tell us something um, that our bodies are reflective of our souls. And as our bodies are hungry and thirsty, so are our souls hungry and thirsty for spiritual nourishment. And so this is from the very first time that God is formally worshipped in scripture there's bread and wine on the table this is also telling us that these elements point to God's provision for our needs the bread and the wine and toward his call for us to worship him and you see in this passage uh, Melchizedek worships God he brings bread and wine because he's saying our bodies are reflective of our souls. We are not just one of these things. We are all of these things. And we're going to do this material, physical eating and drinking to represent something spiritual. Our need for God to fill us, to grow us, to nourish us. And he provides for us in our physical selves and our spiritual selves and we are called to worship him. And Melchizedek worships God, and Abraham turns and gives a tithe in worship to God. They are, these are all sort of fundamental elements of worship that are represented here in the first time that bread and wine are set on God's table. Let's move to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 6. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. You know the story. Um, they are about to be led out of Egypt by Moses, and God wants to make sure that Moses understands who is behind this, why God is doing this, and that this message behind the Exodus is carried for, forward into all future generations. It is no small miracle that we are still talking about this event some 4,000 years later, it's actually more than that probably, but um, thousands of years after this event, 
our worship is still defined by what God tells Moses here. Well, well, so we're going to just go through some of this interaction between God and Moses. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, and the first portion of verse 7 say this. God says this. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is very early in the Exodus story. God has just connected with Moses and called him to to bring God's people out. And God makes these four promises to his people through Moses, that he will bring them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, that he will deliver them from slavery, that he will redeem them with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, and then he will take them to himself as his people, and he will be their God. So there's a fourfold promise there that we want to make note of for future reference, um, but I think this is a fundamentally important verse to understanding the meaning of the Lord's table. So we've included it. We'll, we'll refer back to it later. Just a few chapters later in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, I'm going to read verse 17, and then I'm going to read verses 21 through 27, and we're just sort of literally setting the table for what God wants to be done at this Passover feast, the fact that he wants it to be perpetuated throughout history, the history of redemption of his people, and the meaning of it, all right? So we're going to try to capture all of that in these few verses, beginning in verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever, Then jumping to verse 21 and following. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So, in Passover, God instituted a meal to help his people remember his faithfulness, his promises, his goodness, his power to liberate and redeem. And so he uses this meal, again, I'm just going to keep repeating this phrase, because we are not just physical. Our physical reality reflects a spiritual reality. 
you know this already. When you look into someone's human eyes, you see more than, uh, what are the parts of the eye? The iris, the cornea, give me some more. The lens, the what? The pupil. You see more than these, uh, is there, you got any Latin names in there? Iris, that's got to be Latin. All right, yeah. You see more than Latin names. You see more than body parts. You see a window into their soul. You begin to know something about that person that's not necessarily entirely rational knowledge, but it's, it's some spiritual connection that is deeper than what just is happening physically. You're not just processing photons through your optic nerves. You're getting to know someone. You are seeing who they are. And so this, this truth that the physical is connected to the spiritual comes, God understands this, and he sets a table in front of us so that we can remember some very fundamental things about life and who he is. And so a couple of things in this passage, in God's institution of this table, the bread that is used or is set on this table is, is unleavened bread. And there's so much symbolism there, right? So God says, I'm going to redeem you from Pharaoh, from slavery in Egypt, but we got to go. So you don't have time to let your bread rise and then bake it. So bake it now, bake seven days worth because you're going to need it on the road. And so God's people have to bake bread that hasn't risen and then they have to eat it. That's not as pleasant as eating Wonder Bread, right? It's, it's crackers. And so there's this symbolism of the urgency of the gospel, of, of our redemption. But also in Scripture, and we'll, you'll see this more clearly in a moment, unleavened bread, bread without yeast, is uninfected bread. It's pure flour. It's not contaminated. And so it symbolizes purity or sinlessness. This is really important because we're going to get to a place where Jesus holds up this piece of bread that represents sinlessness, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. That's a huge statement, right? We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but just for now, we need to capture a few things from this verse that God wants us to be without sin. That's part of the symbolism in the unleavened bread, that we are to be his people, but without the leavening of sin in our hearts. That's what he wants, but we all know it's there, but God is calling us to enter into that battle between good and evil inside of our own hearts. We are also to take from this passage that a, the blood of a lamb will save us from death. God is very intentional here. He is, he is setting up the cross some 2,000 years before it happens. And that's not accurate dating math, by the way. That's general Tom just slap math, right? Do you have, a, you have an actual date? I don't know. So if some of you Bible nerds have an actual date, throw it out there. I'll take it, right? I didn't look that up before. I didn't Google that before I did this. Um, but a long time. And God's, God's looking way ahead in redemptive history. It might be 2,400 years. I don't know, something like that. Um, 
And he's saying, at some point, I will provide the lamb whose blood will cause the angel of death to pass over your soul. You will live because that lamb died. His blood will save you from your sin. And so this is part of this Passover meal, this early. uh, Now, it's important to note, again, if you're a Bible nerd, if you're not a Bible nerd, you won't care about this. There is no wine ordered or instituted at the table of the Passover. This is a a tradition that arises because wine is ubiquitous. Wine has always been on God's table. And so when the Passover is celebrated, there's always wine there. But it's not actually mentioned in the Exodus story or the ordinance for the Passover meal. You have salt water, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and lamb. And these are, the, these are kind of the fixtures of, of what God is trying to help us remember, the bitterness of our sin, the bitterness of our bondage to sin, uh, the provision of the blood of the lamb to save us from that sin. Okay, we'll keep going. Um, so we've got a call out of sin, the bondage to sin. We've got a lamb who will provide for that uh, salvation, and then I want to just jump to a kind of a random verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is so hard to quote from because Paul is, is rebuking a church that has lost its way. And in this case, he's, he's rebuking someone who is a leader in the church who is in pretty severe sexual sin. And the church still reveres that leader. They're kind of like, no, no, he's a great leader. And Paul's like, oi, vey. These things are not consistent. You cannot lead God's people and be a pervert at the same time. What's wrong with you idiots, right? And so Paul is mad, he's upset, and he's going, he's going like all in really strong. And he says, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm just going to read verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. In other words, putting this man at the front of your church is not a good thing. This is not okay. Do you not know, and if you want all the scandalous context, just read the chapter on your own this week. It's no fun. I I just, you know, but I'll just, making it quick. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the reason I include this, there's a couple of reasons, but you can see here this metaphor of leavening is the same as sin, right? This is the, Paul is, is, he gets it, he's Jewish, he understands the Passover uh, matzah, is unleavened, and that represents sinlessness. That's, that's our, what God is calling us to. And he also is, is making reference to Christ as that Passover lamb. This is really important that a Jewish author in the first century AD gets the connection. Like he sees what God was doing all along and how it is fulfilled in Christ. So Let's just take a few things, distill a few things from this passage. We are his body. Did you hear 
Paul say, um, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You are part of the body of Jesus Christ. I always struggle with this. I don't feel pure. I, I don't feel free from sin. I still feel like it clings to me like some creepy demon that just won't let me go. But the truth is, I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I am no longer defined by my sinfulness or my past, the sins I've committed or those committed against me. I am redefined by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and so are you. And so it is into that truth that we are called to live to know that we are his body and we are to fight against sin. We're to cut it out, if you will. So there is that clear symbolism. I hope you see that there. Um, and then there's this call to our purity in Christ. We are his body and he is our hope. He is that Passover lamb provides our escape from hell and death. And we can live out of a new reality. I am not defined by my sin. I am a new creation. And we are actually that new creation. It seems ridiculous to look around us and say we are the hope of the world oh no right you are the unleavened body of jesus christ on earth that is a big deal and you're not unleavened because of what you bring to the table in fact you're only unleavened because of what christ has brought to his table and that he has brought you to his table and deemed you now on the merits of his righteousness worthy to have bread and wine at the table of our Lord. So, I want to take us to Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the night before he, well, the night he is betrayed, then he's taken and accused and beaten and then crucified you know the story but this is in luke chapter 22 verses 14 through 20 and you're going to hear some things that are going to sound weird at first but we'll, we'll set them all in context when the hour came he reclined at the table or at table and with and the apostles with him and he said to them i have earnestly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is 
the new covenant in my blood. So, do you remember the passage in Exodus chapter 6 that we read earlier? And there were, there were a fourfold promise. Remember that? At the Jewish Passover Seder, at the time Jesus was celebrating this dinner, and even today, if you go to a Jewish family's home for a Passover dinner, this same, they do the same thing that was done at Jesus' table. There are four cups of wine. Uh, they're usually small, or maybe they serve really big cups of wine. But the problem is, if you're doing the, going through the Seder, you have to drink the first cup before you go to the second part of the meal, and then you have to drink your second cup. And so you're drinking four cups, so they're usually pretty small. But anyway, those four cups are symbolic of this passage in Exodus chapter 6, that fourfold promise of God. The first cup is the cup of God's promise to bring us out from the burdens of life. The second promise is, is the second na- cup is reflective of God's promise to deliver us from evil. The third cup is called the cup of redemption, and it's, it's drank after you eat the lamb. So you, well, and there's other, there's really other cool symbolism I'll tell you, tell you about in a second. And then there's that fourth cup, which is the, the represents God's promise to take us to himself, to be his people, and he will be our God. So each of those cups represents one of those promises from Exodus. And Jesus, at the Last Supper, you see him with one of those previous cups saying, pass it around, it's for you. This, this cup of, uh, it was either uh, that God will bring you out or deliver you. I don't know which one it was off the top of my head, but it doesn't matter because the, the big hitter is the one after the meal. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. And, and I'm not making this up. If you go to a Jewish Seder today, the third cup at dinner is called the cup of redemption. That is the cup that Jesus held up and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Dude, that's awesome. He didn't just understand the power of the symbolism in what he was doing. He was the power of the symbolism in what he was doing. And the the apostles could not possibly have fully understood what he was saying. They had to just be going oh, I just gave up three years of my life. I think he's a freak. He wants me to drink his blood? What's going on? And of course, Jesus is, is simply inviting his followers to the table that God has set before them from time immemorial to say to them, hey, I am doing this for you because I love you because I have promised to redeem you, and I promised a long time ago that that would come through the blood of a lamb that will be painted on the doorpost of your heart, that you could be free from bondage to sin, that you could be part of my family for eternity. And as American Christians, we don't really look at the Passover Seder enough. So just one other little, this is free, no extra charge, um, there are three pieces of matzah that the host at the Seder 
has when he starts the meal, and they're stacked, one, two, three, on top of each other. And at some point in the meal, he lifts up the top one, he pulls out the second one, and breaks it in half. This is the one that Jesus says, this is my body, snap, it is broken for you. The symbolism is so profound, like this is a holy, untainted by sin body that is given for you, who is tainted by sin, you will have my blessings, you will have my life, you will be free from the bondage of sin because my body didn't sin, and I'm giving it for you. But and this is, this is called the imposition of symbolism. It's a totally rude Christian. Uh, I'm just taking a totally terrible prerogative. But I'm sorry. In a tradition that predates Christianity, the second piece of matzah is taken and broken. Like the second person of the Trinity is broken for our... Hello! That's awesome! you're not going to get that reaction from a Jewish person today. They don't like that imposition of Christian symbolism onto a table, a, a ceremony that predates their, that, the, the, whatever, their tradition predates our claim, right? But I think it's beautiful. Um, and so you have at this table Jesus ex- with extreme intentionality laying out the truth of what's going on. And so he says to all of his followers, to the 11 who were there, to you, to all of us, come to the table of grace. This is where God's grace is tasted. It's taken in. The physical reflects the spiritual. There's something that happens at this table that does not happen any other way. We experience his grace. We are reminded of who we are and what he has done for us by coming back to this table again and again. We're to come to his table of grace and believe in the one who was without sin. The unleavened body of Christ is what was sacrificed for us. And we're to believe that his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, will bring us redemption. The Lord's table is not magic. It is simply a place where the spiritual and the physical come together in a powerful way to remind us of who we are, of what God has done for us, of what he has promised to us, and to remind us that he will fulfill his word. He has fulfilled his word. He is faithful and good and loving, and he cut a covenant with us in the blood of his own son. He has no intention of breaking that promise to you, to, well, that promise to bring you out, to deliver you from evil, to redeem you from sin and to take you to himself to be your God and for you to be among his people forever. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at 
a God who's been weaving truth into the hearts of his people throughout the history of redemption. That you set bread and wine before Abram. That you developed that aspect of worship throughout time to bring us to your table. To captivate our hearts again and again with a love that pursued us even to death and beyond. And Lord, we thank you that the cross is not the end of your story. It is where our redemption happens, but what lies beyond that is hope and resurrection and eternal life with you, that we might live forever as the unleavened body of your Son in this eternal mystery of how you have woven the physical and the spiritual together again and again, and you draw us through it back to your heart. Lord, may we return there often through this act of worship, of coming together in your presence, of proclaiming the truth of who you are, and of enjoying the redemption which you have provided for our souls. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.